Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 107, Sparta Triumphant. At the end of the last episode, Athens somehow, with an ad hoc fleet and crew, managed to win a huge naval victory at Arganusa, in which they killed the Spartan commander and practically annihilated his fleet. But the Athenians did the opposite of capitalize on this incredible success. Instead, in their anger at their general's failure to collect their own war dead in a violent post-battle storm, they put them on trial and had them executed. This was a huge mistake with disastrous consequences, as it removed the Athenians' most experienced and successful military leaders. And so, they now had to face the challenge of Lysander and Persia without their most experienced commanders, and those who were selected in their place must have been unnerved that the same fate could await them. The Athenians immediately came to regret their rashness, and the city was not only in mourning for their war dead, but also for their foolishness. Just three months later, the city would publicly mourn even further over the recent passings of their two dramatic geniuses, Euripides and Sophocles. At some point after his last performance at the city Dionysia in 408 BC, Euripides migrated to the Macedonian royal court at Pella, where he had been commissioned to compose plays for King Archelaus. But in early 406 BC, While out on a hunting trip with the king's royal entourage, the 74-year-old Euripides was said to have been torn to death by the king's dogs. Before this gruesome death, though, Euripides had written three plays that would be performed posthumously at the city Dionysia the following spring in 405 BC, under the direction of either his son or his nephew. Whoever it was won first prize, and included among the three plays were the Bacchae and Iphigenian Aulis, both of which have survived, as well as Alcmion and Corinth, which has been lost. On the other hand, the slightly older Sophocles also died over the winter of 406-405 BC, at the age of 90, likely from natural causes. And so, in this time of mourning, as a sort of tribute, Aristophanes produced the Batrachoi, or Frogs, his last surviving play during the turbulent era of the Peloponnesian War. It received first place at the Linnea in early 405 BC, and it gives us an exaggerated but instructive parody of the styles of both Aeschylus and Euripides. Unfortunately, Sophocles had died after the play was already written and was during its first phase of production. So Aristophanes did not have enough time to rewrite him in it as one of the major characters, but he was able to insert many scattered references to him throughout. The Frogs begins with the entrance of Dionysus, the patron god of the theater, ludicrously disguised as an effeminate Heracles, as he is dressed not only in his customary yellow woman's dressing robe and buskins, but is also covered by a lion hide and carrying a club. He is accompanied by a slave named Xanthius, who is riding a donkey and carrying his master's luggage on a pole over his shoulder. Xanthius is portrayed as being smarter and braver than his master, who routinely makes critical errors that force Xanthius to improvise in order to protect him and to prevent him from looking incompetent. But this only allows Dionysus to continue to make mistakes with no consequences whatsoever. Dionysus says that he wishes to go down to the underworld in order to bring back a tragic poet to Athens, since as he claims, there is none left of any worth in the city. In order to find a reliable path to the underworld, he is seeking advice from his half-brother, Heracles, who has been there before, 
since one of his 12 labors, was to kidnap Hades' three-headed dog Cerberus. When Dionysus arrives at his doorstep, Heracles sees his effeminate half-brother dressed up like him and laughs uncontrollably. Dionysus then explains that he needs to go to the underworld in order to bring back Euripides from the dead and thus restore the prestige of Athenian tragedy. Because, quote, I need a poet who can really write. Nowadays, it seems like many are gone, and those that live are bad, end quote. Heracles responds by naming a number of capable young poets, such as Agathon, whose tragic victory was the reason for celebrating in Plato's Symposium, and Iophon, the son of Sophocles. But Dionysus contends that none of them are genuine, as they are, quote, insufficient squeakers, twittering like a choir of swallows, and a disgrace to their calling, end quote. Then he asks, which road is the quickest to get to the underworld? To which Heracles replies that he can either hang himself, drink poison, or jump off a tower. Basically, he jokes that the quickest way to the underworld is for one to kill themselves. But then Heracles tells him of a longer journey across a large lake, which he himself had taken, possibly Lake Acheron in the region of Epirus in northwestern Greece, but warns that there would be many terrors which he might encounter along the way, such as snakes, wild beasts, the great mire of filth, and the eternal stream of dung. Undeterred, Dionysus chooses this option. Dionysus and Xanthius then exit the stage, and when they return, they arrive at the aforementioned lake. There, they meet Charon, the ferryman of the dead, who agrees to escort Dionysus across the marshy waters into the underworld, but Xanthius, who is a slave, is not allowed in the boat and has to walk around it. The catch for using Charon's boat, though, is that Dionysus must row his own way. It's from this scene where we see the frogs, after which the play is named. As Dionysus tiresomely rows the oars and continually complains about a sore bottom in his blisters, a chorus of frogs, not to be confused with the main chorus, mock and greatly annoy him. In particular, they break out into a repetitive rowing chant of Brekakekoax, coax, Brekakekoax, coax, Brekakekoax, coax, coax. When the frogs refuse to be silenced, an irritated Dionysus shouts, quote, now listen, you lyrical twerps. I don't give a damn for your burps. End quote. When Dionysus finally arrives at the far side of the lake, he meets up with Xanthius, who tells him of his encounter with the Empusa, a shape-shifting monster supposedly with a single copper leg and commanded by Hecate, who we described in episode 80. Then, Dionysus and Xanthius are approached by a singing and dancing chorus of Eleusinian initiates, chanting hymns to Demeter, Persephone, and Iochus. The two travelers decide to join the dance. When the chorus is finished being sung, they find themselves in front of Hades' palace, and several farcical scenes of mistaken identity ensue. Upon knocking on the door, Dionysus is greeted by the doorkeeper, Iachus, who mistakes him for Heracles due to his attire. Still angry over Heracles' theft of Cerberus, Iachus threatens to unleash several monsters on him in revenge. So when Iachus goes off to fetch them, a frightened Dionysus exchanges clothes with Xanthius. Then, a maidservant of Persephone arrives. She's excited to see Heracles again and invites him to a feast with the dancing virgin girls. Xanthius is more than happy to oblige, but after the maid exits the stage, Dionysus quickly wants to trade back the clothes in order to attend such a feast. 
But as soon as Dionysus is back in his Heracles disguise, he encounters two people angry at his half-brother, and so he makes Antheus trade a third time. When Iacus returns with assistance to confront the alleged Heracles, which is now Xanthius, he offers to allow him to torture his slave, which is now Dionysus, in order to obtain the truth as to whether or not he is really a thief. After each is whipped, the terrified Dionysus shouts out that he isn't actually a slave, but that he is a god. Not wanting to torture a god, it is determined that both Dionysus and Xanthius will be brought before Iacus' masters, Hades and Persephone, in order to ascertain the truth. As everyone exits the stage, the chorus comes on for the Parabasis. When Xanthius, Iacus, and his two attendants return to the stage, it is revealed that Hades and Persephone had verified Dionysus' true identity. After a brief conversation, Xanthius overhears shouting coming from inside Hades' palace. Iacus tells him that there is trouble in Hades. Quote, There is a custom down here that applies to all the fine arts and skilled professions. Whoever's the best in each discipline has the right to his dinner in the great hall with his own chair of honor. End quote. Xanthius learns that Aeschylus had the chair, but now that Euripides has come to Hades, he has challenged him for it, and he appealed to all the cutthroats and murderers for support. So Hades decided to have a contest for the throne of tragedy. Aeschylus and Euripides are the only competitors, because with typical modesty, Sophocles has declined to challenge them. When Xanthius inquired about who was the judge of the contest, Aeacus said it would be difficult to find someone clever enough in the underworld. But later, because he is the god of theater, Dionysus was asked by Hades himself to mediate the contest. Then, everyone exits the stage, the chorus comes back on, and after a brief song, there is a complete change of scene, to the Hall of Hades, who himself is sitting on his throne and with Dionysus, Aeschylus, and Euripides in the foreground. As the contest begins, the two playwrights take turns quoting verses from their plays and making fun of the other. The challenger Euripides first attacks Aeschylus, quote, I saw through him years ago all that rugged grandeur. It's also uncultivated and unrestrained. No subtlety whatsoever, just a torrent of verbiage, end quote. Aeschylus responds that his plays have lived on while Euripides' works have died with him. Throughout the contest, the two poets make references to their plays. At one point, Euripides argues that the characters in his are better because they are more true to life and logical. Quote, I write about everyday things, which the audience knows about, and could take up on if necessary. I didn't try to bludgeon them into submission with long words. End quote. A frustrated Aeschylus then asks Euripides what qualities does one look for in a good poet, to which he replies, to teach people to be better citizens. Aeschylus responds that he believes idealized characters are better as they are heroic and models for virtue. Quote, My heroes weren't like these agro-lothers, delinquents and rogues they write about nowadays. They were real heroes, breathing spears and swords. End quote. Aeschylus also mocks Euripides' verse as predictable and formulaic by having his opponent quote lines from many of his prologues, each time interrupting the declamation with the same phrase. Lacuthion Apolesen, or lost his little flask of oil. The passage here has given rise to the term lekathon for this type of rhythmic group in poetry. Euripides counters by demonstrating the alleged monotony of Aeschylus's choral songs, parodying excerpts from his works and having each citation end in the same refrain, He kopon ou pelethes ep eragon, 
Oh, what a stroke. Won't you come to the rescue? From Aeschylus' lost play, Myrmidons. Aeschylus retorts to this by mocking Euripides' choral meters and lyric monodies with castanets. During the contest, though, Dionysus redeems himself for his earlier role as the butt of every joke. He now rules the stage, adjudicating the contestants' squabbles fairly, breaking up their prolonged rants, and applying a deep understanding of Greek tragedy. Finally, Aeschylus grows tired of the contest, and so to end the debate, he asks for the scales to be brought in, and each are told to tell a few lines into it. The poetry of the two playwrights is weighed and measured, and whoever's lines have the most weight, or substance, will cause the balance to tip in their favor. Euripides produces verses that mention the ship Argo, persuasion, and a mace. Aeschylus responds with the river Sperkaos, death, two crashed chariots, and two dead charioteers. Since the latter verses literally refer to heavier objects, Aeschylus wins, but Dionysus is still unable to decide whom he will revive. He finally decides to take the poet who gives the best advice about how to save Athens. Looking at both men, he says, quote, I came down here for a poet. What for? To save a city, of course. Otherwise, there won't be any more drama festivals. And then where would I be? I'll judge between you on this alone. I shall select the man my soul desires. End quote. Euripides gives cleverly worded but essentially meaningless answers, while Aeschylus provides more practical, Themistoclean-like advice by saying that they should commit everything to the war at sea and look after the navy in order to win. In the end, Dionysus decides to take Aeschylus back instead of Euripides. Of course, feeling betrayed, Euripides calls him a traitor. Hades allows Aeschylus to return to life so that he may share his patriotic wisdom with the current generation and save Athens in their hour of need. And so Hades advises him to educate the fools. As Aeschylus walks away, he tells him to keep that lying foul-mouthed rogue, Euripides, out of his chair and instead give it to Sophocles while he is gone. Aristophanes, who used his plays to critique Athenian society, its political unrest, and involvement in the war against Sparta, wrote the frogs during a time when the military and political power in the city was on the verge of utter collapse. The underlying political theme is essentially that old ways are good and the new ways are bad, with the old being the warrior ethos of an older generation who values Homer and the new being the intellectualism of a younger generation who values the philosophical quibbling of a legalistic society. The Frogs was received so well at the Linnea that the public even demanded that it be performed again, likely a few months later at the city Dionysia. This was a rare honor indeed. In fact, throughout most of the 5th century BC, dramatic plays, both tragedy and comedy, only received a single performance when first produced, and Aristophanes' Frogs would be the first exception. That's because the play's political themes of Athenian reconciliation, unity, and commitment to the navy were so powerful and admired by the citizen body. The play also had a salute to the slaves who had earned their citizenship at Argonusae. Many of these new Athenians were taking their places in the theater for the first time, freed from bondage by their own heroism. Finally, the play contains solid, serious messages which represent significant differences from Aristophanes' general critiques of policy and peoples and his idealistic thoughts of peace. 
in the Parabasis, he urges the citizen body to reject the leadership of those whom it now follows, those being of foreign parentage, and turn back to men of known integrity who were brought up in the style of noble and wealthy Athenian families. Some scholars also contend that at several points in the play, Aristophanes subtly hints at the exiled Alcibiades, who he likely believed would conduct the war better than those running it now. While he deals gently with Theramenes' wavering between democracy and oligarchy, he blasts one of Alcibiades' enemies, Cleophon, as a foreigner who was adamantly opposed to any peace which did not come of victory, whereas Aristophanes believed that Athens ought to look for a less stubborn end to the war. In fact, in the course of Dionysus' final test of the poets, he sought advice about Alcibiades himself and a strategy for victory, not a proposition of capitulation. Though Euripides lambasted Alcibiades, Aeschylus responds with the advice that he should be brought back. He also complains that the city is relying on worthless men, rather than good ones, and advises the Athenians to give the rights of citizenship back to the people who had participated in the oligarchic revolution years earlier, arguing that they should be forgiven because they had been misled by Phrynichus' tricks. This proposal was simple enough to be instated by a single act of the Ecclesia, and was actually put into effect by a decree by a man named Patroclides. More on that later. This advice, then, might have been the basis for why, after the second stage performance of the frogs, the Athenians crowned Aristophanes not with Dionysus' ivy, which was typical of drama victors, but with leaves from Athena's sacred olive tree on the Acropolis, an award that was typically reserved for the city's greatest benefactors. Unfortunately, the Athenians did not heed Aristophanes' likely sage advice to recall Alcibiades, and with his second exile and the death of their best generals, they would be at a serious disadvantage against Lysander. Returning back to the war narrative, in the aftermath of the Battle of Argonusae, while the Peloponnesian fleet was deteriorating at Chios with no money or prospects for defending their allies, the Athenians began to lay waste to the territories of pro-Spartan cities in the Aegean and Ionia. Finally, at some point over the winter of 406-405 BC, those Spartan allies, who were badly suffering from these unopposed Athenian attacks, held a conference at Ephesus. After much airing out of grievances, they decided to send ambassadors to Sparta in order to report on the situation and to demand that they reinstate Lysander to command the fleet. This request was further strengthened by envoys from Cyrus, who also desired Lysander's reinstatement. In fact, Cyrus insisted that Persian support for Sparta depended entirely on Lysander being given command once again. And so, envoys from Cyrus and the Asiatic Greeks were sent off to Sparta. Because the Athenians had rejected their most recent peace offer, when these envoys arrived and stayed at these conditions to the Spartan ephors, Lysander's faction could no longer be denied, and it was agreed that he must be sent back out immediately. Since there is no evidence that the Spartans were yet aware of the trial and execution of the Athenian generals from Argonusae, and thus the poor state of leadership that was left behind in Athens, Many in Sparta likely believed that if the Athenians could muster another attack, then the Spartan fleet could be all but lost, and with it the war. Therefore, it became imperative to bring back Lysander now. However, since the Spartan constitution prohibited any commander from holding the office of Navarch more than one term consecutively, 
They appointed Arrakis and named Lysander as his epistolaeus, or secretary, as a sort of vice-admiral. But for all intents and purposes, this was just a technicality. Everyone understood that Lysander, once again, was in command. In early spring of 405 BC, Lysander sailed to his old base at Ephesus, where he sent for Etionicus at Chios to come and meet him with the fleet. There, he gathered together all the rest of the ships that could be mustered in the Aegean and ordered for them to be repaired. Moving with considerable speed, he also ordered the construction of new ships at Antandros and then visited Cyrus at Sardis to obtain the desperately needed money to pay for it all. But Cyrus explained to Lysander that all of the king's allotted money had already been spent, plus much more than was stipulated. He even produced the accounts to corroborate this. But due to their personal friendship and tied interests, he still opted to give him a large sum on the spot from his own money. With it, Lysander was able to pay his sailors and triarchs, but the money was insufficient in itself to build a fleet large enough to bring him a victory over the Athenians. Fortunately, Lysander would soon enough enjoy a massive stroke of luck, as Cyrus would come to need to rely on his help this time. That's because, according to Xenophon, the previous year Cyrus had executed two of his cousins for not thrusting their arms into their core when they met with him. The core is longer than a regular sleeve, and when one's hands are thrust into it, they are rendered harmless because then they cannot hold or reach for their weapons. This was a Persian custom for paying the respect that was due to a king. But Cyrus was not the king, so the fact that he expected this and was angered for not receiving it if true, is a clear sign of his future ambitions. Naturally, though, the murder of his royal cousins had angered his uncles and aunts, so Darius responded by recalling Cyrus back to the royal court of Susa in order to explain his actions. There are some oddities about this passage in Xenophon, though, and so some scholars think that it is a spurious account, and that he was actually only returning due to his father's illness, which, as we will see, will take his life. No matter the reason, though, what is for sure is that the young prince needed to leave Sardis for Susa, but he couldn't trust just any Persian or local Lydian to govern in his absence. Instead, he took the remarkable step of summoning Lysander back to Sardis from Ephesus and appointing him, a Spartan, as a satrap in his place. He left him with all of the revenues from all Persian cities of Asia Minor and the right to collect the tribute due from those cities that was allocated to Cyrus personally and thus was considered his personal property. The revenue from the rest of the cities presumably belonged to the government and was designated to cover administrative expenses. Therefore, Cyrus gave Lysander access to a continuous stream of funds with which he could expand the Peloponnesian fleet without fear of the funds drying up prematurely. Lysander's only command was that he did not attack the Athenians until he had a clear numerical advantage. That request suited Lysander well, though, as it still would be some time for him to bring his crews back up to his own high standard of training. So after reminding Lysander that he trusted him and that he was a friend of both him and Sparta, Cyrus departed on his long journey inland to see his father, who he would find on his deathbed, and then get embroiled in a succession dispute, which we will cover in a future episode.
afterwards, with the resources of an entire wealthy Persian province at his disposal. Lysander began to distribute the funds to pay his forces and to reconstitute his fleet. At the same time, the Athenian generals at Samos were also preparing their navy for an inevitable rematch with Sparta. In addition to Conan, Adamantus, and Philocles, three other men, Menandros, Tydeos, and Cephisodos, were elevated to the rank of general, for a total of six. In the meantime, Lysander set out to undo the influence fomented in Ionia by Callicratidas, who had awakened a powerful pan-Hellenic, anti-Persian sentiment in the region. As the newly appointed Persian satrap, if Lysander allowed this to remain, it would undermine political support for him among the Asiatic Greeks. This was especially the case at Miletus, where a democratic government unfriendly to him was in power. So his first action was to depose it. But since Miletus was a Spartan ally, he could not just attack it. So he had to resort to trickery and deception by privately encouraging his supporters to rebel against its ruling democracy. According to Xenophon, a coup was launched while the festival of Dionysus was being celebrated. Lysander's supporters killed around 340 pro-democratic, pro-Athenian Milesians both in their homes and in the Agora, and drove more than a thousand others out of the city. These refugees were received kindly by Pharnabasus, and he gave each of them some money and settled them in Lydia. With the Democrats gone, the Milesians then installed an oligarchy led by a faction that was fiercely dependent upon and loyal to Lysander. Plutarch relays a somewhat different account, though. He says that after the uprising had begun at Miletus, Lysander quickly came up from Ephesus and entered the city, where he pretended to be angry and rebuked the conspirators for their actions, while telling the leading men of the democratic faction to not be fearful and that he would set everything straight. Therefore, they did not flee the city but remained. Then, when their trust was placed in him, he had them all slaughtered. Regardless of how it happened, though, the democratic leaders were killed in some way, the rest fled the city, Lysander's oligarchic friends were now in control, and the deception used to take Miletus would be a harbinger of his methods in the future. When Lysander had sailed from Ephesus to Miletus, he had to go past the Athenian fleet at Samos. As the Peloponnesian crews had not yet been whipped into top form, the numerically superior Athenian fleet ought to have been on alert, intercepted them, and forced a battle, but they didn't. Their hesitation was a result of their new generals, who were less experienced and lacked the confidence necessary to attack Lysander. Their caution here would be very costly, because Lysander took notice, and when he departed Miletus, he soon turned the strategic situation towards his favor. He knew that the war had to be won in the Hellespont, but despite their inaction earlier, he also knew that if he were to just sail north into these waters, the Athenians would be forced to attack him. So in order to divert their attention, he first set out southwards for the Karamaios Gulf in Caria, where he made an assault against the Athenian allied town of Kedriae. On the second day, he captured the town by force, killing the men and enslaving its women and children, who were a people of mixed Greek and non-Greek heritage. This was an act of deliberate terror meant to discourage resistance by Athens' other allies. Then he continued south to Rhodes, and there he set off westwards on a series of campaigns throughout the Aegean, which are found in Plutarch and Diodorus, but not in Xenophon, 
In any case, along the way, he attacked and seized numerous islands that had Athenian-held cities. As he approached Athens itself, he also raided Agina, Salamis, and the Attic coastline. Even the most fearful Athenian commanders could not allow this to go unopposed, so they were forced to set out from Samos in pursuit. But in a massive game of cat and mouse, as they sailed towards Athens, Lysander evaded them and raced back across the southern Aegean to Rhodes. From there, he hurried northwards along the coast, and by the late summer, he made his way into the Hellespont, where he established his base at the Spartan-controlled city of Abydos. From there, he met up with the Spartan garrison commander Thorax. Together, they coordinated a joint attack by land and by sea on the strategically important city of Lampsacus, an Athenian ally which laid about 30 miles inside the Hellespont on the Thracian Chersonese. They captured it by force, and the soldiers plundered the city, which was rich with wine, grain, and other necessities. Yet Lysander did not let his men run completely roughshod. He released those inhabitants taken captive who were freeborn Greeks, as Callicratidas had done before. He allowed the Athenian garrison in the city to leave under truce, and he left Lampsacus in the hands of its own citizens. These three orders do not appear in any one source, but bring together what Xenophon, Plutarch, and Diodorus all say about the end of the assault. This victory was as much a symbol of his leniency as his power, and he at least kept the veneer alive that the Spartans were fighting for Greek freedom. Still, Lampsacus's seizure was important as it put Lysander on the doorstep of the Propontis, control of which opened his way to the Bosporus, and with it the strangulation of Athenian trade routes into and out of the Black Sea, from which the city of Athens received the majority of its grain. Meanwhile, while chasing Lysander, the Athenians kept to the open sea as they sailed by Chios rather than the nearby coast, which was a much more normal and convenient course for triremes, since the Asiatic Greek cities on the mainland were now hostile to them and in revolt. It wasn't until the Athenian fleet made it to Eleus on the Thracian Chersonese that they learned of the fall of Lampsacus. So from there, they immediately sailed for their stronghold at Sestos, further north into the Hellespont. Although the Athenians had managed to rebuild their fleet, as we discussed last episode, and had by far the most ships of any Greek city-state at that point, they also had few veterans, as most only had experience in one battle, that are Argonusi, and even fewer competent generals. But if the Athenians wished to prevent all of their achievements since the Sicilian expedition from becoming undone, and more importantly, to avoid starvation, Lysander had to be contained immediately. So after loading provisions on board their ships at Sestos, they rowed the fleet upstream towards Lampsacus. While Lysander's ships laid safe within the curving bay that served as the city's harbor, a large Spartan army kept watch to prevent the Athenians from making a landing anywhere on the Asiatic shoreline. And so the Athenian generals began to search for a base on the opposite coast, and the site they ultimately chose was about 12 miles up the Hellespont at a beach called Egospotami, which itself laid about three miles across the strait from Lampsacus. Its name literally means goat streams, because of the two streams which ran down from the hilly hinterland that supplied the site's drinking water, presumably for wild goats and other wildlife. 
From this location, the Athenians would be able to oversee their grain shipments as it approached, or to intercept Lysander's navy should it make a move towards the Bosporus. However, the location was less than ideal because of its lack of a harbor and the difficulty of supplying their fleet, as the little town nearby could not provide enough food and water for the roughly 36,000 men on the 180 Athenian triremes. And so, to obtain supplies, the Athenians had to divide and scatter their forces repeatedly to make the 14-mile round-trip voyage to Sestos. But proximity to Lysander seems to have been the main concern in the minds of the Athenian generals, as their primary objectives were to pin him down, to prevent him from sailing into the Propontis and towards the Bosporus, and to force a battle as soon as possible before their money ran out. Therefore, the Athenians did not intend to spend much time there. The overall commander of the Athenian fleet was Conan, who originally was sent to replace Alcibiades in the region. Despite this, a total of six Athenian generals jointly led the fleet as they rotated leadership every day. But unlike the group of commanders at Arganusai, those at Egospotami failed to formulate a brilliantly original strategy. Instead, they relied on an obvious one. Precise numbers were not given, but the Peloponnesian fleet likely was only at a slight numerical disadvantage, perhaps somewhere between 125 and 150 ships to the 180 of the Athenians. But as before, Lysander had more money, and he knew that he could wait the Athenians out and force them to do something reckless. Even though he intended to decline battle, just before dawn every day, he still had his men board their ships and be prepared as if he would in fact send them out to sea. He even had the temporary screens placed on the ship's bulwark, which served as protection against missiles. On the opposite side of the channel, the Athenians every morning also prepared their ships for combat and sailed out towards Lampsacus. They waited outside the harbor in battle formation, and every time their general for that day offered battle, Lysander declined and never sent his men to sea. Eventually, the Athenians returned to Agospotami, but as they withdrew, Lysander sent out two or three of his swiftest ships to follow them, to watch what they did when they disembarked, and to report back to him. And he did not allow his own sailors to disembark from their ships until these men returned. This procedure was repeated for the following three days, and with each passing day, Athenian discipline began to slacken. Each afternoon, after Lysander declined their invitation to battle, the careless Athenian crews relaxed, napped on the shore, or scattered farther and farther from their ships in search of food. In time, their undeservingly overconfident generals even stopped posting lookouts on the shoreline, and Lysander's spy ships scouted all of this and reported back to him. Eventually, he had his scouts carry polished bronze shields so that they could use the sun to flash messages between ships back to Lampsacus. They were given the order to signal if the Athenians eventually dispersed too far inland that if he launched an attack, they couldn't get back to their ships before he crossed the strait. By the fourth day, the Athenian generals had grown very bold and contemptuous, believing that their enemies were huddling together in fear to face them. It was on the fourth night that the exiled Alcibiades made a dramatic reappearance. He was living in his castle at Bisanthi on the Thracian Chersonese that just so happened to be near the Athenian camp. So he had been watching all of this maneuvering take place for four days, 
and from his position, he could see all of the weaknesses in the Athenians' position and strategy. And so, he went down on horseback to the beach where the ships were gathered, and he was given permission to speak to the generals. During the conversation, he made several tactical suggestions to them. First, he proposed that they should relocate the fleet to a more secure base at Sestos, for obvious reasons, and warn the generals that when their crews were scattered on land in search for food, they did so lackadaisically, while their triremes laid at anchor and an enemy sat across the water that was trained to do everything silently and at an absolute command. Second, he claimed that he had the ability to secure military support from two Thracian kings. For the past five years, the Odrysian Thracians were ruled by Amadakis. During his reign, he experienced frequent attacks from the Tribali, another Thracian tribe to the northwest, near modern-day southern Serbia and western Bulgaria, which resulted in him losing some of his territory. So to ensure that there would be no such losses in the south, in 405 BC, he had appointed Suthis II as ruler of his lands along the Aegean shoreline. These two men would become the most powerful rulers in Thrace and were frequently at variance with one another, but both were good friends with Alcibiades. Therefore, they apparently had offered to provide him with a joint army to assist his countrymen against the Spartans. Alcibiades then made it known that a requirement of him doing so, though, would be that the Athenian generals had to offer him a share of the command. The introduction of ground troops would have been very valuable. If the Athenians could have taken Lampsacus by land, Lysander would have been forced to fight his way out of its harbor against an Athenian fleet in a stronger position, and at a time and place of their choosing. Under those conditions, defeat would be almost certain, and with the land in Athenian hands, the Spartan fleet likely would have been destroyed as it had been at Cyzicus. But the Athenian generals also had good reason to doubt the promises that Alcibiades was making knowing full well that similar promises in the past had not been kept. Ultimately, no Athenian general would have dared to yield any part of his command to an exile, because if they were defeated, they would be blamed, but if they were victorious, all credit would go to Alcibiades alone. And so, putting their personal pride ahead of what was best for the Athenians, the generals declined Alcibiades' offer and rejected his advice. In fact, two of the generals, Tydeus and Menandros, were especially hostile to him and ordered him to leave from their camp at once, barking that it was they who were in charge now, not Alcibiades. If this offer had come from anyone else, perhaps it would have been something that the Athenian generals would have considered. But as it were, a disappointed Alcibiades immediately left the Athenian camp. This would be the last time in his life that he came face to face with the Athenian military, and he could only return to his fortress and gaze from a distance at the unfolding events and the fruition of the Athenians' many errors. On the next day, which was the fifth total, the Battle of Agospotami took place. Two accounts of it exist. According to Diodorus, the command that day fell to Philocles, who formulated a different plan to end the stalemate and to force a battle. With 30 ships, he sailed out in the direction of Sestos, leaving orders to the triarchs of the other 150 ships to follow him at an appropriate time. He likely wanted to tempt Lysander to pursue his small detachment fleet, such as what occurred at Notium. It's likely that Philocles took note of that and planned to exploit it, 
So instead of the main fleet being taken by surprise and getting destroyed by the pursuing Spartans, he wanted to use the advanced squadron as a lure to draw the Peloponnesians into an attack so that the larger force following behind him could surprise and overwhelm the enemy. This plan, though, would require effective leadership, great discipline, and excellent timing and coordination between the squadrons. Unfortunately, at this point in the war, these were not qualities that the Athenian fleet or leaders possessed. On the other hand, Lysander every morning had his fleet alert and ready, had observed the enemy's tendencies, and carefully prepared for a strike if a chance should arise. Furthermore, he was well aware that the Athenians would only be able to defeat him through the use of some sort of trick intending to draw him into a disadvantageous position. So as soon as he saw Philocles' departure, he pounced and was able to cut off his squadron before it got too far downstream. With his superior forces, the small force was immediately routed. His movements were too fast and too coordinated for the disorganized Athenians, and the remainder of their fleet was caught unprepared on the beach. With the remnants of Philocles' squadron fleeing towards them and Lysander's victorious fleet in hot pursuit, panic ensued and the Spartans were able to land on the beach's southern end, where a cape blocked their view from the Athenian camp. As their ships reached land, the Spartan troops leaped ashore and sprinted to seize the cape. Once entrenched on the high ground, Etionicus led the land forces in an assault on the Athenian camp, while Lysander ordered the triremes back out to sea. They immediately sailed towards the place where the Athenian ships were beached, but as they came into the shallows of the water, no enemy ships came out to meet them. So those stationed at the prows of each ship were able to cast their iron grappling hooks into the empty holes in front of them, and the Spartan fleet began to backwater and tow away many captured Athenian ships. In their confusion, some Athenians tried to pull their triremes back to shore, while others climbed on board to resist. At the same time, Lysander and his marines landed and advanced through gaps in between the ships. Together with Etionicus and his land forces, they were able to seize the Athenian camp, as the stunned Athenians, after all, had no organized land force. Unable to provide resistance, they began to run off in all directions, with the majority heading towards Sestos in order to save their own lives. In contrast, Xenophon relates that, as usual, the entire Athenian fleet came out on the day of the battle, and Lysander remained in the harbor. When the Athenians returned to their camp, the sailors scattered to forage for food, but on this day, they had gone way too far afield, and Lysander's lookouts noticed this. So when the Athenian foragers were in the middle of their return journey, the Spartan lookouts raised their shields as a signal. When Lysander saw the reflected sunlight from his nearest spy ship, he knew that the camp was now left unguarded, so he immediately ordered his fleet, which was primed and waiting, to begin rowing towards a low-lying promontory called a Barnis on the Asiatic shoreline. There, they unloaded their triremes' big masts and cruising sails and deposited them on the shore so as to lighten their weight and make them faster and more maneuverable in battle. These would be collected later, if the day's battle went against them and they needed to escape, because Lysander knew that if he were defeated, there would be no returning to Lampsacus. And so, with the triremes stripped for action and their crews back on board, Lysander gave the command and the fleet sailed with all haste towards the Athenian camp. When Conan became aware that Lysander's fleet was coming right at him, he signaled to his men to get on board their ships and to prepare for battle as quickly as possible. 
but there would be no sea fighting at all this day, as his men were all scattered and not even close to their ships. And so, some frantic Athenian triarchs desperately tried to man their ships and flee, but due to the lack of available men in the camp at the time, they only managed to fill some of their ships with two banks of rowers instead of the normal three, and some with only even one, while others still laid on shore completely empty with no rowers at all. Only Conan's ship and eight others were able to put to sea with their full complement of rowers, including the sacred messenger ship Paralis, and because of that, they were able to evade being captured whereas the short man triremes were eventually overtaken. Whichever account of the battle itself is accurate, the result is clear. The Athenian fleet was obliterated. Only nine of their 180 ships escaped, and these were the nine led by the general Conan. Lysander captured nearly all of the remaining 171 ships, along with some 3,000 to 4,000 prisoners, a number that constituted about a tenth of the entire Athenian force. The rest managed to escape and seek refuge from small fortresses in the area. Realizing that there was nothing to be done and that the entire Athenian cause was now lost, Conan and his nine ships did not stick around but fled to save their own lives. By chance, they came across the masts and sails of Lysander ships, which had been deposited at Abarnus. Since these nine Athenian ships had no time to fit out their own vessels for sailing before they made their escape, These Spartan masts and sails not only provided them with the equipment that they would need, but it also ensured that without them, Lysander's fleet would have reduced ability to pursue after them in the open sea. Then, as they sailed out of the Hellespont, the Peralis was dispatched to inform Athens of the disaster, while Conan sailed the rest to Cyprus to seek refuge with Evagoras, the friendly king of Salamis. Remembering the fate of the generals after Argonusai, Conan did not dare to return to Athens until over a decade later. Egos Potami would be such a remarkable victory for the Spartans that, of course, like Marathon almost a century earlier, many legends later came to surround the battle. Plutarch records that there were some who declared that the Dioscori, Castor, and Pollux appeared as twin stars on either side of Lysander's ship, just as he was sailing out of the harbor against the enemy. Others said that an earlier falling of a large stone from the heavens, aka meteorite, about 50 years earlier was later viewed as a portent for this important victory. Whatever the case, the Spartans later commemorated their victory at Aegis Potami with a dedication at Delphi of statues of the Triarchs who had fought in the battle. A verse inscription explained the circumstances. Quote, These men, sailing with Lysander in the swift ships, humbled the might of the city of Kikrops, and made Lacaidaemon of the beautiful choruses, the high city of Hellas, end quote. Lysander and his victorious fleet then sailed back to Lampsacus, bringing along with them the captured Athenian ships and prisoners. After sending a ship to Sparta to announce the good news, Lysander then gathered together the allies to decide the fate of their new prisoners. During the course of the war, Sparta's allies had seen their land devastated and their economies ruined, and had suffered many casualties of their own in the fighting. Atrocities on both sides had grown even more horrible as the years went on, but the Athenian massacres and enslavements of the populations of cities like Scione and Milos were especially well known, and victors commonly tended to conveniently forget or even excuse their own excesses and allow themselves to be consumed by the hardships that they have endured. So in the discussion that followed between Sparta's allies, many accusations were made against the Athenians. 
One specific example cited was a resolution that the Athenians had recently passed in their ecclesia concerning how they would treat their enemies after they won the war. That they would cut off all the right hands of those that they should capture so that they couldn't wield a spear or apply an oar any longer. Another was an Athenian atrocity committed when the captured sailors of a Corinthian and Andrian trireme were thrown overboard, in which Philocles was the general. With such accusations fresh in their minds, it was ultimately decided that with the exception of Adamantus, who alone had spoken out against the decree in the Ecclesia about the cutting of the hands, all Athenian prisoners were to be killed, while the other Greek captives were spared. Despite his previous harshness towards defeated enemies, we cannot be certain that if this were Lysander's choice alone, he would have killed all the prisoners. The decision, though, was made by Sparta's vengeful allies, and he signed off on it. Philocles was brought forth first to answer for his alleged throwing overboard of the Corinthian and Andrian sailors. His throat was cut, and then followed the slaughter of the rest of the Athenian prisoners. Plutarch says that the number was 3,000, whereas Pausanias gives it as 4,000. Some scholars, though, have doubts that this type of mass execution ever occurred. Whatever the case, Adamantus's leniency here naturally gave rise to later rumors of treason. As a result, some historians suspect that the battle may have been lost due to treachery, perhaps on the part of Adamantus, and perhaps in collusion with the oligarchical faction at Athens, who may have wanted their city defeated in order to overthrow the democracy, but this all remains speculative. For all intents and purposes, the war was now over, and the Athenians would know it soon enough too, as the Peralis was en route to Piraeus with the dismal report. The ship arrived at night, and Xenophon, who was probably present in Athens at the time, relates how the news was received. Quote, One man passed it on to another, and a sound of wailing arose and extended first from Piraeus, then along the long walls, until it reached the city. That night no one slept. They mourned for the men who had been killed, but more still for themselves, as they thought that they would suffer the kind of fate that they had imposed on the Melians, colonists of the Spartans after they had conquered them by siege, and on the Histiaeans, Scionians, Toronians, Agenetans, and many others among the Hellenes. End quote. Basically, the Athenians feared that nothing could save them from suffering the same fate that they themselves had unjustly inflicted against the citizens of smaller states. Not for the sake of avenging any wrongs, but because they had allied themselves with Sparta. The treatment of the prisoners at Aegospotami must have only convinced them further that surrender would likely bring death or slavery, so they chose to continue to resist. On the next day, the Ecclesia voted to take all possible measures to defend the city. They resolved to repair the walls, to place guards on all of them, to barricade the entrance to the two military harbors of Zia and Munichia at the Piraeus, which were now empty and useless, and to keep only the Cantharis open to receive shipments of food. As these defensive preparations were made for the inevitable siege, the people began to brace themselves for the arrival of Lysander's fleet. Meanwhile, after he had organized affairs at Lampsacus, Lysander sailed for Byzantium and Chalcedon on either side of the Bosporus, with the hope of gaining control of these cities and blocking Athens' primary source of grain. Because they heard what just happened to the Athenians, when Lysander offered them reasonable terms, they surrendered without a struggle. He even permitted Athenian officials and soldiers in garrison to leave safely on the condition that they go only to Athens, 
This latter gesture, though appearing benevolent at first sight, was in fact a canny tactical move. Lysander knew that the city of Athens was far too strong to take by force, so in the inevitable siege that would come, he wanted as many hungry people in the city as possible, in order to minimize the time it could hold out. He then established a Spartan garrison in these two cities, and placed Thenelaus in command as Harmost, or governor. Afterwards, he led his fleet, which now numbered 200 triremes, slowly towards Athens, and along the way, all the Greeks in the Hellespont, including Sestos, officially flipped from the Athenian to the Spartan side. Once they cleared the Hellespont, he sent Ationicus ahead with 10 triremes to the Thracian coast along the northern Aegean, where he succeeded in bringing all Athenian allied Greek cities in the area over to the Spartan alliance as well, while Lysander himself went to Lesbos and ordered the affairs there. Then, the Athenian allied cities throughout the Aegean Islands, except for Samos, and on the coast of Asia Minor, also voluntarily submitted to the Spartans. In doing so, Lysander replaced their democracies with oligarchies. These new governments were not only beholden to Sparta, but more importantly, had guaranteed their allegiance to Lysander personally. He also ensured further stress on the city of Athens by driving back all Athenians who were living abroad, including colonists, political exiles, clerooks, and garrisons, which increased the city's overall population. As we mentioned, only at Samos did he meet any resistance, because the democratic government there was fiercely loyal to Athens and refused to give in. In fact, the democratic Samians had killed all of their aristocratic opponents, who might have betrayed the city to Lysander, and then prepared to endure the inevitable Spartan siege. Because Samos persisted in their loyalty, and gratitude the Athenian Ecclesia later uncharacteristically would vote to grant them citizenship. Had they declared to offer citizenship to all of their allies when they still had power, the fate of their maritime empire might have been very different. But they didn't, and as it was, they now only had the Samians left on their side and their resistance to Lysander. Diodorus and Plutarch record that one of the officers in Lysander's fleet was Gallippus, the victorious commander who fought in aid of the Syracusans in Sicily. His appearance here is the only time after the Sicilian expedition that we hear of him. While Lysander was beginning the siege of Samos, he entrusted Gallippus with all of the war booty and about 1,500 talents of silver and ordered him to deliver it to the ephors at Sparta. The money was in small bags, each of which contained a scatali, which was a wooden staff used for carrying coded writing. In particular here, it noted the amount of the money, but it could also be used to send some secret and important message. When the ephors typically send out an admiral or a general, they make two scatali that are exactly alike in length and thickness, so that each corresponds to the other in its dimensions. They keep one for themselves at Sparta, and the other in possession of their commander abroad. Whenever the two sides wished to send a message, a strip of parchment was rolled slantwise around the entire staff, leaving no vacant surface, and the dispatch was written lengthwise on it. Afterwards, they took the parchment off and sent it off, without the piece of wood. When unrolled, the dispatch was unintelligible, but rolled slantwise around the recipient's own scatale, the message was restored and it could be read. And so, even if Gallippus had found the dispatch in the bag of money, he could not have read it. Supposedly, despite having been a commander himself, Gallippus did not know about the scatale, which is odd. In any case, Plutarch and Diodorus record that he could not resist the temptation to embezzle part of the money entrusted to him. So when he arrived back at Sparta, he secretly undid the bags and took out 300 talents, 
which he hid under the tiles of his own house. He placed the rest back in the bags, and when he delivered them to the E-Force, they opened them up, found the note, and deciphered the secret message, which included the amount of money that was sent to them. When they discovered that there was a shortage, they were perplexed to how this could be, until a servant of Gallipus came forth with a riddle. He told them that many owls slept under the tiles of his master's house. When the E-Force checked the tiles and found the coinage, they realized that the riddle referred to the owl stamped on the Athenian coins. Gallipus immediately fled Sparta and went into exile. And so, this was how, like his father, he met his downfall in a financial scandal. Gallipus was a man of exceptional ability who had orchestrated the downfall of the Athenians at Syracuse. But this one mistake of greed brought shame upon him for the rest of his life. He was condemned to death, in absentia, and would disappear from the historical record. Back at Samos, because Lysander didn't want to waste so much time there, when he needed to get to Athens, after a siege and blockade was firmly put in place, he left a force behind of 40 ships and continued on with 150 towards Attica. On the way, he restored the Melians and Agenetans, who had been removed by the Athenians, to their ancestral islands. Afterwards, he ravaged Salamis, and finally, in October 405 BC, he brought his 150 triremes at anchor just outside the Piraeus. As he established a blockade, the fleetless Athenians were powerless to oppose him. At the same time, the entire Peloponnesian army led by both Spartan kings congregated near the academy, one of the three gymnasia just outside the walls of Athens. Pausanias had taken up the entire military contingent of each city's force, rather than the typical two-thirds levy, while Aegis marched down all of his forces from Decalia. Likewise, without an army to protect them, Athens was also now besieged by land. It was the first time in more than a century that both Spartan kings were in the field simultaneously. Their intention was to intimidate the Athenians into an immediate surrender. But even this unprecedented show of force could not bring that about. Still, the Athenian cause was hopeless. The Spartan victory at Aegospotami had destroyed their fleet, and Sparta's possession of the northeast cut them off from their principal source of grain, while the Spartan occupation of Decalia continued to oppose land transportation. To make sure there would be no slip-ups, Lysander also decreed death as the penalty for anyone caught bringing grain into Athens. With their port blockaded and their city besieged, with no allies left except for Samos, who was itself being attacked, and with no hope of obtaining food from the outside, an overpopulated city of Athens slowly began to starve. Meanwhile, anticipating the inevitable surrender of their enemy, a meeting of Sparta's allies took place to discuss Athens' fate. Although they were unified in their hatred of Athens, each city-state did not necessarily share the same goals. It was probably at this point when Corinth and Thebes made it known that they wished to see Athens destroyed, and Plutarch says that a Theban named Arianthus formally proposed that Athens itself be leveled and Attica be turned into pasture land for sheep. Pausanias says that this proposal was supported by both Aegis and Lysander, but it was on their own initiative, without the approval of the Spartan assembly back home. As we have mentioned before, these two pursued an ambitious policy that aimed at replacing the Athenian Empire with a Spartan one. On the other hand, 
The other Spartan king, Pausanias, preferred a much more conservative policy that would have had the Spartans confine their activities to the Peloponnese and seek comfortable relations with an Athens stripped of its power and empire, but not completely destroyed. It's likely that the majority of the Spartans back home felt this way too. Ultimately, no consensus was reached at the meeting, and when the Spartans saw that there would be no immediate surrender, they sent Pausanias' army back home, while Aegis and his forces returned to Decalia for the winter. Lysander then left enough ships to maintain the blockade of Athens, and led the rest to Samos to help subdue their sole remaining ally. When the Athenians heard that there was serious discussion taking place about raising their city to the ground, they were naturally frightened. According to Andocades, in his speech titled, On the Mysteries, the Athenians at this point tried to strengthen their city's resolve by giving back the rights of citizenship to those whom they had disenfranchised, men known as a Timoi. However, even though the people were on the verge of starvation, there was no formal talk of surrender. But when the reserve grain supply was almost entirely gone, they finally sent word to Aegis at Decalia, offering to denounce their claim on their empire and to join the Spartan alliance, but only if they could keep their lives, their walls, and control of the Piraeus. Aegis, though, told them that he did not have the authority to negotiate a peace, and so they must take up the matter in Sparta. Although he actually could strike a peace deal, he obviously did not want to associate himself with such lenient terms. In any case, when the Athenians sent ambassadors to Sparta in order to discuss the matter, the ephors did not allow them into the city. Instead, they met them at Salassia on the Laconian frontier. On hearing their offered terms, though, they rejected them on the spot without further discussion and ordered them to go back to Athens and to only return if they truly wanted peace with a much better proposal. The Athenians had to know that any peace deal in their current situation would at the very least involve the destruction of substantial sections of their long walls. This was a terrifying prospect because it meant that at any time the Spartans should choose to impose a siege, the Athenians again could be cut off from the sea and starved out. When the ambassadors returned and reported to the boule, an immediate session of the ecclesia was called. During it, one of the counselors named Archistratus arose and proposed the acceptance of Sparta's conditions. But even in their desperate state, his fellow Athenians would not hear of it. Ascanius, in his speech, titled On the Embassy, reports that they voted to imprison Archistratus for having made the suggestion and passed a motion put forth by Cleophon, which forbade any similar proposal in the future from being spoken. So extreme a reaction could only have been the product of distrust. The Athenians clearly did not believe that the Spartans would keep their word and that they would kill or enslave them if they surrendered. Therefore, an unconditional surrender was not even up for discussion. But even the demagogue Cleophon could not postpone peace negotiations forever between the Athenians and Spartans. As the months dragged on, and with people literally dying of hunger in the streets, the Athenians finally were willing to risk future danger in an effort to ward off immediate destruction. Theramenes, the very man who had stepped forward to overthrow the 400 when they were willing to betray the city to the Spartans, risked danger once again by doing the exact opposite. True to his moderate nature, he did not wish to accept Sparta's terms outright or to flatly refuse to negotiate either. Instead, he spoke in the Ecclesia and proposed to seek out Lysander in order to learn Sparta's true intentions 
namely, whether they wished for the destruction of their walls in order to enslave the Athenians, or as assurance of Athenian good faith. At the same time, according to Lysias, he told the Ecclesia that he had discovered something of great value, and so he asked the people to vote to give him full powers in order to negotiate a peace. When pressed to reveal what this valuable information was, he declined to answer and urged the people to trust him, because secrecy was critical if he was to have any success. By now, the starving people were so desperate that they not only were willing to hear him out, but voted to approve his motion. Therefore, that winter, 405-404 BC, Theramenes sailed to Lysander at Samos, where he stayed with him for three months. Interestingly enough, during these no-doubt anxious three months back at Athens, Pausanias records that someone named Onobius was able to get a motion to pass that rescinded the exile status of the historian Thucydides, likely because the city found itself wanting back its former general, as those were in short supply now. As we discussed in episode 88, accounts vary whether he came back to the city, but if he did, it wouldn't be until after the war ended. In any case, when Theramenes finally returned to Athens in early March of 404 BC, he explained his long absence by saying that after Lysander dismissed him with the same message that Aegis had given them, he kept him there against his will. This is likely implausible, and even the ancient writers did not believe it. Instead, they assert that Theramenes chose to stay as long as he did in order to allow the Athenians to grow even more hungrier so that they would be more willing to accept any peace that the Spartans offered. However, modern scholars generally reject both of these explanations. Because if he would have returned empty-handed, it's unlikely that what followed would have taken place, as the Athenians then chose him to lead a commission of ten himself and nine others, to Sparta itself in order to negotiate a peace. And so, it's likely that he had made significant progress in the long discussions with Lysander, and just needed to finalize it with the Spartan authorities at home. In addition, Lysander had sent ahead a message with some Spartans and an Athenian exile named Aristoteles, who was living in Sparta, and they reported to the ephors on his meetings with Theramenes. His formal account was that he gave him the same response as Aegis, but informally, he must have made them aware in his change of mind. Certainly, because of his military exploits, his opinion held the most sway at Sparta at the moment, and so they would have went along with whatever he felt was best. The Ephors met Theramenes and the other ambassadors once again at Salicea on the Laconian frontier. Once they learned that the Athenian envoys had come with full powers to make peace, meaning that they were able to make a binding agreement without referring back to the Ecclesia for approval or ratification, they were then allowed to go into Sparta itself. When the ambassadors arrived in the city, the ephors called an assembly of not only the Spartans, but with representatives from their allies. It was during this meeting that the seeds of discontent and fear were sown among Sparta's leading allies, Corinth and Thebes. These especially, but also many other Greeks, urged the Spartans not to make peace with the Athenians, but rather to destroy them entirely. The Spartans, though, ignored their wishes and said that they would not enslave a Greek city that had performed such good service for Hellas during its time of greatest dangers, meaning the Persian Wars. They preferred rather to offer peace to Athens, so long as the Athenians abided by their terms. These likely were what Lysander had told the ephors. In exchange for Athens being left intact and its people alive and free, 
all of their exiles were to return home, as these were mostly oligarchically minded men friendly to Sparta. Athens was to be governed by its ancestral constitution. What this meant was unclear, and it soon would become a point of contention. They were to give up their claim to all of the cities that they held in their empire, though they would maintain possession of their territory in Attica. And finally, they were to make the port of Piraeus tax-free. Defensively, they would agree to the destruction of their long walls and the fortifications around Piraeus. They would disband their army, and they would surrender all but a dozen ships. These were to be designated for commercial use only, and were probably the sacred ships Paralis and Salaminia, plus the ten ships dedicated to the ten Attic tribes. Athens also would become Sparta's ally, and follow the Spartans as their leaders on land and sea, on whatever campaign they should order them to join, which in effect turned Athenian foreign policy over to Spartan control. These terms may seem harsh, but it likely was the best that the Athenians could have expected in their current situation. Even still, some Athenians would continue to resist a peace with Sparta, to the bitter end. The chief opponents were uncompromising Democrats, like Cleophon, who likely suspected that capitulation would spell the end of democracy, and that the return of bitterly oligarchic exiles meant the death of their current democratic leaders, like himself. Therefore, they voted for what was best for them, and not the city of Athens. So threatening was their influence that the advocates of peace believed that they had to be removed. Eventually, oligarchically-minded political clubs won over support of the moderates and gained influence in the boule. At this point, they appointed five ephors to oversee the peace process. Cleophon immediately was put on trial, and he was falsely condemned for evading military service and was executed. So when Theramenes and the other ambassadors returned to Athens in April of 404 BC with Sparta's official peace treaty, they found that the chief obstacle of peace had now been removed. Even then, other influential Athenians continued to complain, and in response, the oligarchic supporters of peace also brought charges against the leading dissidents and had them jailed. Then, on the next day, the Athenians met in the Ecclesia to vote on Sparta's peace proposal. Plutarch records that a young orator named Cleomenes stood up and asked Theramenes if he dared to act contrary to the great Themistocles by surrendering the walls to the Spartans that he himself had erected in defiance to them. In response, Theramenes said, quote, Young man, I am doing nothing contrary to Themistocles. For the same walls which he erected for the safety of their citizens, we shall tear down for their safety. And if walls made cities prosperous, then Sparta must be in the worst plight of all, since they have none. End quote. Even though to the bitter end some voted against it, the majority accepted the proposal, bringing the war to its official end. Lysander would arrive a few weeks later to enforce the peace terms. The exiles who accompanied him expected this to begin a new era in Athenian history. According to Xenophon, Lysander decided to make a holiday of this historic event. He brought out flute girls, like the ones who perform at Symposia, and Sparta's allies, covered with wreaths of flowers, danced and rejoiced as Athens' walls were torn down. So how did Theramenes persuade Lysander to abandon his former stance on the destruction of Athens, and what was the something of great value that he claimed to have discovered? The ancient writers do not say, but Theramenes was a moderate, very smart man, and it's likely that he understood that Sparta would accept nothing less than them giving up their empire, fleet, and walls in exchange for their lives and city. 
It would not have taken much for him to persuade Lysander that raising Athens to the ground would create a power vacuum and leave Attica prey to an increasingly powerful and ambitious Thebes and their Boeotian subordinates to the north. While they were Sparta's allies now, alliances aren't permanent. In fact, we have already seen how the ambitions of both Sparta and Thebes had come into some conflict during the war, back in episode 98. Therefore, it would not be in either Lysander's or Sparta's interest to contribute to the growth of a state that had already grown in size and influence during the course of the war and was currently under the control of a faction that was at best lukewarm to Sparta. It would be far wiser for him and the Spartans to retain a friendly and unthreatening Athens to serve as a buffer and to check on Theban ambitions. In addition, in city-states that had formerly allied to Athens, Lysander had imposed decarchies, or boards of ten pro-Spartan officials designed to ensure oligarchic government and loyalty to Sparta. These were supported by a Spartan garrison and a harmost, or governor. But for Athens itself, Theramenes likely persuaded him that it would be best to grant the city some degree of autonomy. He probably raised the point that Athens was much larger than the other city-states, and that the Athenians were accustomed to democracy for more than a century. And so ten men would be too few of a number, and the Athenians would need a government a little bit more complex than just a decarchy, because such a tight regime might antagonize the Athenians and drive them into resistance. As for the something of great value, perhaps there are many as had received intelligence that the Persian king Darius II was on his deathbed. In a matter of months, his sons would engage in a civil war for the throne. Even though Theramenes had no way of knowing about the chaos that would follow the king's death, he could have known that the older Artaxerxes II, who was in position to succeed Darius, was unfriendly to his younger brother Cyrus, and might have put an end to his command in the west, and with it his power to help Lysander. That might well have changed the balance of power in the situation as the new king might then revert back to the earlier policy of trying to prevent any one power from emerging among the Greeks. This in turn might lead him to support the weakened Athenians against the stronger Spartans. While Artaxerxes' backing likely wouldn't have reversed the outcome of the war, it could have allowed the Athenians to hold out behind their walls until even better terms could be secured, as well as to encourage Lysander's political opponents at Sparta to undermine his position. And so, it was very much in his interest to make a reasonable peace and to install a friendly regime in Athens before Darius died and the news reached Greece. This, of course, is all just speculation. But no matter how or why it came about, Lysander ultimately allowed the Athenians themselves to determine what form of oligarchic pro-Spartan government should be imposed following the war. And that, in its aftermath, will be the topic of the next episode. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 108, The 30 Tyrants.